welcome back to the podcast. I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Will Hill from Will Hill Consults. Hello, Will. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. I am doing just fine, Sean. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to have you as well, uh, especially to talk about the topics where I know I have you have quite a bit of experience. But before we do that, if you wouldn't mind, so our audience can learn a little bit more about you, can you go into a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started right out of school at um, what was then called Creative Solutions. Uh, for those who have been around the industry quite a while, may have heard that name a time or two. Um, and most would know it as his current name under Thomson Reuters. Uh, and I spent 21 years there servicing firms in a variety of manners. Uh, spent a lot of time traveling, doing software implementation, business process consulting, work with how firms engage their customers. And then May of 2022, went ahead, took a leap, stepped out, said, hey, I want to keep focused with firms, not have to worry as much about the technology. But man, I love working with firms on process and improvement, uh, working with firm owners on uh, providing them some accountability to move into the areas they need to spend time. Time. So I started my own business, Will Hill Consults, and uh, we've been having fun. Very exciting. And I'm excited about your background as well, too. I think it's great for this show and the topics we like to talk about, which is all about finding waste, getting time back, reinvesting it in areas of growth in terms of where firms would like to you know, uh, ultimately grow or reinvest time if they had it, which unfortunately, many firms do not have. So your area of expertise is also figuring out how they can get some of that time back. And I'd love to dive more into that as a topic. Probably where to go first would be great to learn more about some of what you've described so far, which is this, you know, as we've described in conversations we've had before, living at this intersection between people and process. I'd love mm -hmm. to hear you talk a little bit more about what that means and what that might look like for firms. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of firms, Sean, get hung up when they sit down in a room the whiteboard and the wall. They say, "Let's have a let's talk about our process." And they sit and they map it out. And they're like, mm, "Here's where we need to fix things. Let's go make a change. Maybe we're putting in a new piece of technology to plug a gap. Maybe we're shifting roles and responsibility of people. Doesn't matter what it is." So it looks great. Everyone nods their head, said, "This is fantastic. Let's go do it." And invariably, what happens, as you know, when we put change in place. Nothing goes 100% according to plan. Things don't go smoothly. And all too often, we quit at the first time, a sign of trouble. And we stop and go, ooh, maybe our idea doesn't work because fill in the blank with the scenario here. And the challenge there is that it, isn't, it doesn't necessarily mean the idea was wrong. Now, I'm not here to be a proponent of ramrodding every idea through, no matter what kind of resistance you get, right? <laughs> yeah. But just because there's a challenge or something that's difficult doesn't mean it was the wrong idea. And this is where you have to start to assess where people intersect with this process because we're out of the lab laboratory at this point in time. We're in real life. We're balancing a shift in how we do things with the pressure of getting work done. We're balancing the shift of how we're doing things with the expectations of customers all of a sudden. We're balancing the shift of how we're doing things with a lack of experience in this new way compared to the comfort and knowledge and experience of the old way. And so 
that's where this intersection of people and process really comes into play to step back. And, you know, I'm just going to keep going on your question for a minute, Sean, I'm going to ramble, but uh, first thing is when we hit those bumps, you've got to step back and ask yourself, what does this mean? Is this a real impediment to the purpose we were trying to achieve with this change? And where I see a lot of technology failure happen is when they hit the bumps, part of the reason they stop is they never tied the change to a purpose. So Sean, when you were you were starting your question, you talked about, hey, finding efficiency to use for purpose X, growth, give yep. staff part of their life back, whatever that purpose may be. And I think we have a challenge in that when we start to make changes to say, we want to gain efficiency, but we don't take the next step and say, what are we going to do with the efficiency? And we don't communicate that to the team whose lives are being changed inside of the workforce. Then it starts to fall apart because when we hit that resistance, we don't have a motive or a reason to push through. We don't know. Oh, we're just trying to be more efficient anyways. I don't care. I don't know what I do with that. And so we pull back. Oh, that's too difficult. I don't want to do that. So we've got to have a reason to push through those initial bumps and uh, make it through and give that staff some of that motivation. Say, yeah, things are going to be difficult, but this bump doesn't mean that we got to stop because our purpose was greater. We know what we're trying to achieve with this. It's a great perspective. And I, I would agree as well, too, having been part of a lot of software implementation projects. And well, I know this is a big part of your background. I think one of the reasons why it's so easy to kind of give up or quit is because you don't really know what you're doing it for, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not, if you're excited about, if you're not aligned in terms of what you're excited about in terms of the possibilities or what kind of outcome you're ultimately going to be able to achieve if you make this commitment and investment, then it's easy to lose sight of that, right? So you, you don't really have the what's the pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow kind of uh, set up for yourself. It's just kind of like, it's easy to lose sight of why we were doing it. And this just now feels like extra work, but I haven't seen any terms of benefit or results myself. And I don't know if I ever will. So right. probably along the way, unless you're really well aligned on that, you're going to start to lose buy-in for pursuing that change. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective as well, too, because I know you've been a part of a lot of projects like these. What are some of the things firms should do or could do at the beginning that can help them prepare for it when they inevitably run into some of these snags because I know you well I know you know very well that every project is going to run into some form of adversity and any kind of change realistically as well too whatever it is you want to improve it's not all going to go 100% swimmingly because you're making changes right but mm -hmm. the idea is that it would be worth it in the end so anyway I'd love to get your perspective on that yeah so everyone's two favorite c words um, which are communication and collaboration and so let me just on the communication piece, this has got to be broad. And I think I see this in firms that have recently grown where they struggle with how much they're communicating to the broad team. So as, as firms grow and they haven't hit some of their whole firm communication rhythms yet, or they say, Ooh, well, we're busy because we're growing. Let's only communicate to the people that we know this touches. And what I'm seeing there is a lot of times we miss some of the broader communication. Say, hey, Sean, got to make sure you know what's going on in the firm. Here's some things. 
we don't expect it to touch what you're doing, but we know that you work together with Sally and Sally's going to be directly impacted to this. So if she's a little bit lax in getting back to you, she's focused over here. Or if, if you have any other ideas, here's the people that you talk to, right? So this idea of communicating the change broader than the people who are executing, I think we often lose sight of why we do that, or we bury it in the middle of a firm-wide note and say, oh, we're making some changes with this. We're excited. But no one connects the dots for the team to say, why do I have to know? Even if it's something as simple as I have to adjust my internal service level understanding and expectations, we still need to communicate. That's why we're telling this to you. Right. So that's on the communication side. Let's see the collaboration side early, early, early. Right. So let's say we're going, we're going to, we decided to make a change and then we're going to bring in the team to execute the change. That is not collaboration. That is someone carrying out your work ideas. <laughs> if, if we're looking at that and saying, hey, we think we're going to change our tax workflow process. I need, as soon as we think that's what we want to do, I need to bring people in and say, here's what we're trying to accomplish. We've got to make some decisions. Here are the options, or we don't have options yet. We're that early in this stage. Now is the time for the people whose daily lives are impacted to be part of that conversation. If you want collaboration, you've got to get involvement early on, right? Nothing well, okay, some things drive me more nuts than this. But one of the things in the business world that drives me nuts is at the end of a project, the project leader thanking people for their collaborative help. And all they did is simply carry out duties as assigned at the end of a project when most of the decisions are already made. And I'm sorry, leader, that's not collaboration. That's delegation. And they did your work. I would rather say, hey, here, we got the project done. Here's some folks that helped us execute. That's a more honest communication than saying we had a collaborative effort. And you know, as, as we battle some of the staffing issues in the profession right now, I think that's a big one to be truthful in how we're communicating about the level of collaboration uh, that is or isn't happening and knowing that the team members want to be a part of some of these decisions. Right. And I think there's a difference between the direction and collaborating around the choices you're making. Right. So, Sean, if you're the leader of the firm, it is up to you to set the direction and to point out to the horizon, say, this is where we're going. Right. That's not a collaborative element, that's a directive of where we're going. But you don't have to know how you're going to get there. You just have to be able to point and say, that's where we're going. Now we're going to bring the people in. We're going to collaborate together on what process changes have to happen in order for us to go there. And there could be several choices of ways that the uh, the team could choose to do that. Great examples. I like the fact that you've called out the kind of like the marketing speak or the, the buzzword bingo in terms of uh, reviewing a project, it was a group effort, it was collaborative effort, all that type of stuff, or mislabeling it as collaboration when in reality it was just execution or something like that, right? Calling it what it is, I think is important because otherwise it can feel awfully disingenuous and backfire, right? It doesn't really, if your team doesn't believe you in what it is that you're saying, that you're only doing yourself a disservice and trying to describe it as something that it wasn't. 
right? I would uh, much rather have someone thank me for helping get a project done. Yep. And that's what I did. Then someone saying, hey, we collaborated with Will and really got this done. Because in the back of my mind, I'm going, I know we really didn't collaborate. Now I feel my my authenticity to my peers is now at risk, in my opinion. Like, oh, someone else who knows what level of involvement I truly had is going to look at me and go, we know you really didn't collaborate. You just did what Sean said, whatever. Why does he like you more than anybody else to give you extra credit? And it just seeds that kind of stuff internally that you do not need um, in a firm or any business. Good point. Good point. Yeah. It can seem or almost feel somewhat innocent, or maybe it feels like almost going through the motions to an extent, but these things are real costs, right? And reverberating effects elsewhere in the organization, which it just makes everything you want to do from that point forward, that much more challenging. So glad you identified that. Cause that's a nuanced element of these projects that I think isn't talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And it's also from the team's perspective, right? can't do all of these things by yourself. You need your team to believe your plan, to understand your vision, the directives that you mentioned. You want people to rally around you. Then one of the first things you could do at a minimum is just be as honest as you can be about every every role that everyone's playing as part of this process, right? And giving credit where it's due, but authentic. Uh, that's a key difference as I would describe kind of what you had shared. And I'd also love to hear you talk about as well, you know, because you have a lot of experience here. Um, where you're seeing at the moment uh, some of the bigger kind of workforce inefficiencies or firm inefficiencies in where they should be leveraging ultimately these strategies to try to make improvements. Like where mm-hmm. are those, where are the biggest opportunities at firms? Because you've already alluded to a couple of times, which I know we both know very well because firms, you know, a lot of firms are at or over capacity at the moment. So they feel like they're, they can barely tread water. Where are some of these opportunities they should be looking at in terms of firm or operation that they either may not be or just really not know where to start because they're overwhelmed? Yeah. So I would say the first place to start is internal consistency, Sean. Um, and we are in we're in such a high demand time in firms from from their calendar perspective. Yep. That when when someone discovers a faster, stronger, better way to do things, when they discover that there's something they don't need to do, asterisk, put a pin in that one, I'll come back to it in a minute, um, it's not being shared. And that is not because that person is evil and selfish and not a team player. That's a bunch of garbage. It's because that person's blasted busy. And they're like, oh, I can't believe I didn't know this sooner. I bet everyone else is already doing it this way. And they just got their head down trying to crank everything out that's sitting on their plate. And so you've got to look at ways to say, hey, how do we how do we surface that internally? You know, do we need do we have conversations? We do we do some show and tell about a new way you've discovered to do something recently, right? And so that's that's one of those those things that you want to look at is just internal consistency because if you want to scale you've got to be able to leverage all of your staff and if your staff have different workflow processes and steps for the same thing then we're not going to be able to leverage well we're going to, we have to leverage inefficiently you know this is this is commonly true post merger or we we see the books of business come together and the marketing spend come together, 
but the operational process may not come together. And so now we say, ooh, I can't find staff. I'm going to go buy a small firm to buy their staff. But if we don't adjust, if we don't adjust their process, now if let's say Sean, you've got a, a partner named Sally, and um, I'm I'm one of the accounting folks that's prepping financial statements. If you have a certain way that you want yours organized or certain notations that you like, and Sally has something different, when I go to pick up my work, instead of just picking it up and going, first thing I have to do is say, whose client is this? Does this belong to Sean or Sally? Now I've got to do things differently depending on who it is. And that's ludicrous, right? right? That that's That's an area where busy firms haven't taken the valuable time to leverage the scale that they truly have by creating consistent process internally. And it's frustrating to the team as well. I, I don't I don't think it puts the right uh, mode within there. Excellent point. There's, I have so many questions for you about this one. I'm glad you brought this up. To try to solve something that you mentioned earlier, which is a trend in the industry that staffing and hiring challenges a lot of firms are experiencing, kind of this M&A angle has become a bit more attractive. So we've seen like consolidation in the space or like you said, an opportunity or a kind of an initiative to try to acquire a firm in order to add their staff, right? And boost and try to boost capacity that way. But if number one, you, the process you were following at your firm, if you're the acquiring firm already was inconsistent and you're adding a new firm on top of that, you're talking about adding a significant number of combinations in terms of just how the work is being done even if it's ideally the same work. Now that is going to, you might have boosted your capacity, but you might be significantly less efficient from like a unit economic model because mm-hmm. or like per capita because you've added all these additional combinations. Now, what you were doing before is taking longer on a per unit scale, even though you've added more people that should theoretically boost your capacity. So that is super important. And I'd love to hear you talk about this in terms of like who should own that at a firm as well too, is like, Who's the person that should always be looking out for how effective and efficient are current processes and how do we make improvements to them as well? Also, who should that person be at a firm? Is it a shared responsibility? Is it one person that should own it? I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. So I firmly believe there should be a, a COO at every firm. There should be an operations officer at every firm. Um, and, you know, smaller firms may call them a practice manager uh, and, but you've got to have someone that's that's their job saying hey are we are we operating well are we communicating well um finding the pain points whether they be pure internal whether they be extra friction between the firm and the client and looking to solve those things and you know from from the people who are selling the business at the partner level this is a great relief to them and allows them to sit and focus right and and say, hey, I can focus on selling our solutions where they where they belong. If I'm the head of a service line, I should focus on my delivery and making sure that the technical aspects are all where they need to be. But that operations person should be probably singular through the firm, um, because a, a lot of opportunity does exist across service lines or across partners books of business where some of that friction naturally occurs. So that's that's my thought. And I don't honestly 
unless you're a three-person firm, you're not too small to have someone who is the operations officer at the firm, right? Now, they may have a second job, but that that should be someone's primary focus. And when I say primary, I don't necessarily mean hours in the day, but takes priority. First thing I do is come in and do my operations work. When all that is done, if I need to chip in in some other areas because we're a small firm, we need all hands on deck. Great, so be it. But this ought to be my primary undisputed focus. Excellent point. I love that you mentioned that, and also down to the firm size as well, too, because it doesn't. Some listeners might be thinking, "Well, my firm isn't big enough to do that." Right? That's not necessarily true. Uh, you just gave a great example in terms of how you can make that work at your firm. You can start. You can split responsibility, right? You can have someone that owns it, but it doesn't need to be what they do 100% of the time. But someone should still own it, right? Because otherwise it could get messy really fast, even if your firm is small. So everyone's doing things in a different way. That never scales. It doesn't matter. You know, you, the other problem I've seen too, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, is um, I've seen this in other industries as well too, but a organization or a firm might have, might feel like they're inefficient in some way, shape and form, and they might want to look to technology as the solution to kind of fix that. But if their underlying process is inconsistent, tech is probably not not just not going to make that problem better. It could actually make that problem worse because so, now you're trying to fit like the wrong jigsaw puzzle into the wrong piece, probably in the wrong puzzle, <laughs> right? So it gets messier fast. So I, I'm, you have to remember that technology is a magnifier. That's well, what said. it is. And if you've got process issues, it will shine a spotlight and magnify those process issues. If if you've got a great process, it's going to magnify the efficiency of your already existing process. Um, but, but if you just think that technology solutions alone are going to solve your problems, you are wrong. It it will it will not. You've got to have the right areas built around that, um, and that's why when firms go say, hey, we want to be more efficient. The best ones make sure they are efficient with what they have. And then they say, ah, here's our 10-step process. We believe we're as efficient as we can be. Step six to seven is where it all falls apart. We're going to go look for the best technology solution to solve that piece in step six to seven. And then we're starting to go back to where we started with, right? Implement with a purpose and a reason. What are we trying to accomplish as we go through that, which gives great focus through the change process? Well said. And we've come full circle at this point, which is good. We got the whole process down now. And the other thing that I find, I'm sure you've seen this as well too, this part can be a little heartbreaking, so to speak, is when they point to the technology to try to fix a broken process. It doesn't go well and they blame the technology. Now that sets up kind of landmines for the future when for reasons we just mentioned, that's not what that means and that's not how any of that works. But when someone wants to entertain Reapproaching this, even from the right angle, potentially some point in the future, they're going to probably think back to, well, we tried that way back when it didn't work. So now I've got this bad taste in my mouth. We shouldn't consider that again type thing. And that could be a real death knell for firms because you get kind of this averse take on trying to make improvements in this way because it just wasn't done the correct way. Now you've kind of got a huge amount of momentum to have to overcome or this like indifference to it which really, really makes it difficult. And you know, it can be a slippery slope. 
then all of a sudden uh, your firm could start sliding down uh, in a number of different ways because that project didn't go well because it wasn't set up for success in the beginning. Yeah, that's, that's very true, Sean. And, and to those listening who may not be the ultimate decision maker or you're one of several decision makers, if you've had that in the past, how you contextualize your new idea is critical. The first words that come out of your mouth are often going to determine the mindset of the listener, especially if they've been averse to change before. And you've got to entirely set up the construct of your conversation around, hey, do you know how our clients have to log in in two different places and they keep making mentions of it and they're frustrated by it? We can make their experience better here's what I think we could take a look at doing and investigating. Or, hey, do you know how our staff have to do this data entry in two different spots? And we're used to it, but we know that we're overburdening them. And if we could save them each 30 minutes a day, oh, good grief. Think of how much better they would feel going home at the end of the day with, we don't have to worry about trying to increase client load or anything. They're just not as burned out. They're not doing things that frustrate them. It was one of the things that someone mentioned when they last left in their exit interview. I've got a solution that we might want to take a look at for that. But if you start the conversation with, hey, I saw this cool tool, you, you've lost, you've lost, unless they're a cool tool kind of person, right. you've lost them already. You have to contextualize the idea by what you're trying to solve for. And you know, I learned this the hard way. One of my old bosses actually admitted to moving my cubicle. I was right outside her office and in her area, we we're a smaller team. She moved me to the far corner, the farthest away from her office. And later she told me she was just tired of hearing my ideas. <laughs> and couldn't handle them. And you know, she was great. She put me on the management team later. So, you know, we worked through that. But what I found is that all of my ideas came under the context of will idea. When I got better at it, it came under the context of opportunity, problem to solve. Now, here's where I talk about will idea. And so it's not just a theory. It's worked in my life as well with uh, getting traction. That's amazing. So you developed a process for that to help position it right around what gets Mm -hmm. everyone excited about it, right? I think that's awesome. And I think that's one of the things that I want listeners to take away from this conversation as well, too, is though a lot of firms are overwhelmed at the moment, that presents a unique opportunity to invest in a number of these different areas because there is a ton of potential. Uh, There's always an area of opportunity to make improvements, right? You might be on version one or version three or whatever, but you can get to version four and version five if you follow this process that we're talking about. And like you said, well, some of those advantages that you can walk away with can improve really everything in your firm. Talking about getting time back, you can reinvest it, you can keep it, you can boost profitability. Gets really excited from there because you could be proactive about your planning in terms of, all right, here's how much time we're going to get back. Here's how much more effective we're going to become. And here's other areas of opportunity to improve from there if we would like to. So uh, it's really, I would argue, kind of an exciting time from that perspective. Is from an operational efficiency standpoint, I think accounting industry and accounting firms have some of the most opportunity in front of them at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, do not disagree. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience. That I, you know, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. Um, I have a couple questions for you before we let you go. The first is, are there any resources in particular that you would share with our audience where they can go to learn more about anything we talked about or anything that you think is valuable? 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll put the link in, a show, in the show notes to a couple different articles that I've uh, had published lately. One of them is around convincing your clients to change. Um, and then uh, the other is considerations for calling your client list. Uh, if, uh, if you're looking at being overloaded and saying, hey, we have to narrow our focus a little bit to the right clients for us, what's a good approach to do that rather than just being uh, kind of haphazard uh, with, with those communications? So we'll put the links to those in there couple of good articles for folks to read. Amazing. Thank you. And we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Another uh, opportunity in terms of I'm super excited to share that with folks as well, too, uh, that accounting firms have and a couple of different ways to really come up with an ideal solution when you're facing that problem or challenge. And then the last question I have for you is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you, if you are a leader in an accounting firm, reach out to me and let's have a conversation have with smaller firms. Uh, you know, I kind of look at that as three partners and less. I do a lot of one-to-one partner coaching, uh, and consulting on what are they doing with their time through the day, making sure that things are being done by the right people and digging into a workflow process for the firms as a whole, uh, through that a lot of larger firms, I'll work through individual you know, hey, let's fix our tax workflow process. We've become disjointed and disparate of how things are done. Or if you just want some help saying, you know what, we have these annual or quarterly meetings and one of our leaders is facilitating them. They don't really get to participate. And then we struggle with without having a true accountability to following through on the direction that we're trying to go. We feel like we're restarting every quarter and every year and we keep saying the same things. We don't get traction. I'm here to help with that. You can email me, will at willhillconsults.com. I'm very active on LinkedIn as well. Will Hill, tall, funny looking guy in the photo. Although you really can't tell my height in a photo, Sean. So, <laughs> Well said. And uh, we'll link to all of that in the show notes as well, too. I was going to comment on that if you hadn't mentioned it, but Will's LinkedIn posts are fantastic. I find them to be very thought provoking. So I like reading the ones that you share that are in like paragraph format. They really make me think, which is uh, different than a lot of content I see on LinkedIn. So I'd encourage you to follow Will and consume some of that content as well, too. I think it's excellent. Uh, Will, thank you for sharing your knowledge and audience. Uh, Thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with myself and our audience. Uh, It's been very valuable. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Accounting Automation. I hope you found it valuable. I help accounting firms scale their profit exponentially without needing to hire any additional accountants. So if your firm is in growth mode and can't keep up, I'd love to talk to you more about how I can empower your firm to do more with less through automation and technology. To learn more, visit my website, nextstep.io, or email me, sean at nextstep.io. That's sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P, dot I-O. Hey folks, Sean here, and I want to thank you for engaging with my content and encourage you to sign up for my free five-day video email course called Bottleneck Buster. Bottleneck Buster is designed to show you how to boost the profitability of your firm without hiring. You'll learn where your firm is wasting time, how to get that time back, and how to reinvest it to drive greater profitability. Sign up for the course at bottleneckbuster.com.